Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Stephen Hitchings on the topic Cardinal John Henry Newman. Uh, I'll just quote from, this is a quote from the, autobiography, sorry, the biography of Cardinal Newman rather by Ian Kerr. He says that the life of John Henry Newman presents unusual opportunities as well as problems. Apart from the apologia and the autobiographical writings, there are more than 20,000 letters extant, there's 20,000 letters written by him, which together with the diaries will eventually fill 31 volumes. Um, that was actually a mistake, it turned out it's 32 volumes. And the 32 volumes, I mean, one of them's almost 1,000 pages long, and they're, they're mostly five and 600 pages and, and uh, so forth. And the corpus of published, including posthumous works, runs to well over 40 volumes. And once again, he's not talking about little books, he's talking about quite large volumes. So that's about 70-odd books of, of his life, his, rather, his, his autobiography, his writings, uh, his letters. So to get to know that is an absolutely <coughs> enormous undertaking. And people who've written his biography have spent their lives studying, basically. But I'll do my best. Uh, now, this is going to be an illustrated lecture. So if anyone ever hears this in a, um, on a, a tape, they'll have to run to the computer and, and um, download some pictures or something so they can see what it's all about. That is, as far as I'm aware, the only known um, picture of, of, Father, well, of, of John Henry Newman as a young man. I'm not sure exactly how old he was. It looks like he's probably in about his 30s or so. Uh, I'm not sure. Um, and blessed John Henry Newman is, of course, as he is now. Uh, we're just going to look at briefly at a history of his life, just some of the main events. Born uh, 21st of February 2001, died 11th of, of sorry, August 1890. So he was 89 when he died, which is quite a ripe old age for the Victorian era. How did it get ordained in 1979? It should be 1879. Uh, it should indeed be, yes, thanks. Right, okay, uh, the first era has been discovered. I'm sure we'll find more later on. Uh, at the age of 15, he underwent this conversion experience, which is a very interior sort of experience, but he talks about it as giving him an absolute conviction that um, God had set him apart for some particular purpose, and he believed that he was set apart to be celibate. So at the age of 15, he made a kind of informal vow of celibacy, which he kept throughout his life. He attended Oxford from 1816 to 1821, which apparently must have been 15 when he went there, so it's rather young. And he graduated with only third class honours, apparently. Um, he, he tried so hard to do very well that he just um, underwent some great attack of stress or something and just fell apart and ended up with only third class honours, whereas obviously he would have had very much the capability of getting first class honours. Um, Uh, that just reminds me. Sorry, I've forgotten something. I'm looking for a, a little pamphlet. A pamphlet there. I apologise for this. I've got a little pamphlet here. Um, what I was going to say was, that in a way, it's comforting to see that because it's a very much modern phenomenon. Um, I thought of students getting this incredible amount of stress getting ready for the HSC, and I've had a number of students that I've taught absolutely come apart at the, at the time of the HSC. So. I was a bit surprised to see that the same thing was happening two centuries ago. Okay, in connection with this failure um, to achieve very good results at, 
Oxford. I'd like to quote a little bit. This is from um, a little Australian Catholic Truth Society pamphlet called Newman Life and Thought, written by Father Peter Elliott long before he became Bishop Elliott. And um, he writes, a very old lady I knew who recently lived in Oxford, uh, Father Elliott was himself an English convert from Anglicanism, so it relates to Newman, of course. Um, he was a very distant, he was a distant relative of Newman, was very sharp indeed about his neurotic examination failure. From her point of view, Newman's weakness was further demonstrated by his conversion to Rome, and she described one of the greatest Englishmen of his time as the black sheep of the family. In 1822, he was elected a fellow of Oriel College, Oxford. This is a picture of Oriel College, uh, still there. And a few years later, became a tutor at Oriel. Um, in 1828, he voted for Edward Hawkins as Provost of Oriel over John Keble. Now, the significance of that is that, um, that the failure of John Keble to take that position is believed to be one of the main... Um, stimuli for, for the beginning of the Oxford movement. In 1831-32, Newman was one of the select university preachers, and in 1833, um, he'd been doing a lot of research into history, and he wrote a book called The Arians of the Fourth Century. Um, he was very interested in the early centuries of the church, and writing The Arians of the Fourth Century was probably the first wake-up call um, to the... To the um, realisation that things weren't quite as he thought they were in the Anglican Church. It was in the same year, 1833, that John Keble... Do I have a picture of John Keble? Oh, that was John Keble, sorry. He preached um, a sermon on national apostasy, which is commonly regarded as the beginning of the Oxford movement and of the tracts for the times. For those who don't know, the Oxford movement was the movement started by, or started by Keeble and then carried on by a number of people of whom Newman was probably the most influential and they wrote these tracts for the times which are initially small um, little articles which eventually end up being quite long pamphlets that they wrote about various topical issues um, and, and religious problems. Uh, Newman said that at the time the newspapers were always talking about his intentions and they were talking about his intended conversion, etc. And he didn't even believe it in himself in those days. But when, he, when Newman started to write, he said he was confident of three, three propositions. The first one was the principle of dogma. And he said, my battle was with liberalism, the anti-dogmatic principle. Second, there was a visible church with sacraments and rites which are channels of invisible grace. And third, I thought the Pope to be the Antichrist. He wrote, I determined to be guided not by my imagination, but by my reason. And that, I think, is pretty much the philosophy of his whole life. Had it not been for this severe resolve, I should have been a Catholic sooner than I was. He also wrote, it was not logic that carried me on. All the logic in the world would not have made me move faster towards Rome than I did. It sounds like a bit of a contradiction of what he just said the miles over which my soul had to pass before it got to Rome. Great acts take time. He also mentions one particular problem. I could not go to Rome while I thought what I did of the devotions she sanctioned to the Blessed Virgin and the Saints. Newman championed the idea of the via media, which is Latin for the middle way, 
in which he thought that Protestantism was one extreme and Roman Catholicism was another extreme and in between you've got the perfection of the, the via media, that the Anglican Church being the, the main uh, representative of that, which avoids the, the errors of the Protestants and also the errors of the, of the Romans. And he believed that very strongly for quite a while, but um, came to see that there were problems with it. Uh, one of the things that influenced him apparently was a was an essay by, I was going to say Cardinal Wiseman, he certainly wasn't a cardinal at the time, um, he might have been, I think he was just Father Wiseman at the time, um, which pointed out that the Anglicans were really followers of the ancient heresy of Monophysitism. And I'm not really up on the Monophysites, it's just basically the idea of, of one, one, um, it's one person, isn't it? One nature, I'm, uh, that's, I meant to say nature, thank you. One nature in, in Christ. Um, but Newman wrote later, for the first four years, I wished to benefit the Church of England at the, at the expense of the Church of Rome. For the second four years, I wished to benefit the Church of England without prejudice to the Church of Rome. At the beginning of the ninth year, I began to despair of the Church of England, and I was influenced by a mere wish not to injure it. At the beginning of the tenth year, which was 1844, I just simply contemplated leaving it. And in 1845, he did actually leave the Anglican Church and was received into the Catholic Church in October. At about the same time, the essay, his essay on the development of doctrine was published. And this was, another, again, one of the major, I could say, influences on his conversion. I would say, well, it was sort of two things were happening. He was writing the essay on the development of doctrine uh, while he was developing his ideas on doctrine. So basically, he and, he and, and the his entry into Rome, into the church, and his essay on the development were very much um, things that went together. In 1846, he was ordained conditionally. Um, I would have thought he would have been had to be yeah, ordained straight out, but apparently, uh, at those days, in those days, there was some, still some doubt about whether the Anglican orders were valid. It was subsequently decided that they weren't. And the next year, he went to Birmingham to establish the Oratory of Saint Philip Neri. Um, with Father Faber and some others. St Philip Neri was a 17th century Italian saint, uh, a very very holy but very bizarre character, um, who established the oratory, which is kind of like a, uh, a monastery, but, but the, the members are just secular priests. They don't take vows. They, they live in community and they have lots of discussions together and they pray together, but they don't have any vows. So it's sort of like a somewhere in between a normal secular priest and a, and a religious priest. Um, in 1850, this is five years after Newman came into the church, the Catholic hierarchy was finally restored after however many centuries, was it three centuries or whatever? Um, would that be right? Yeah. yeah. Um, with Cardinal, well, with, with Wiseman as, as the first Cardinal, Archbishop of West, Westminster, and therefore primate, Catholic primate of England. In 1864, Newman published his Apologia. Oh, by the way, I'll, I'll get back, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the, the essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And I just put this up just for curiosity's sake, the next slide. I have no idea what the bicycle is doing there, but quite <laughs> <laughs> relief or something. Okay. All right. Um, then his Apologia Pro Vita Sua. This was his 
first great autobiography, his main autobiography, in which he gives the whole story of his religious opinions and, and basically the story of his conversion. Um, he didn't set out to write his life story. I don't think he ever had any intention to. But this was uh, the stimulus for this was when he, he was attacked in print by um, uh, Charles Kingsley. Can you see the next slide? Rather severe-looking character. Charles Kingsley was an Anglican minister uh, and also a, a famous author. Um, his two most famous works probably were Westwood Ho, which is that's the classic comics of it. As you can see, <laughs> great, uh, great theme for a, a minister. And his other one, probably better known, was The Water Babies. Um, I spent ages looking at The Water Babies um, on the internet and I came across hundreds of pictures of little naked babies. I don't know whether that says anything about Charles Kingsley or not. I'm sure it doesn't. But, um, yeah. but uh, Kingsley had written, amongst other things, the following. Truth, for its own sake, had never been a virtue with the Roman clergy. Father Newman informs us that it need not, and on the whole ought not to be, that cunning is the weapon which heaven has given to the saints wherewith to withstand the brute male force of the wicked world which marries and is given in marriage. Whether his notion be doctrinally correct or not, it is at least historically so. In other words, he was using Newman to support the idea that, that Catholicism is dishonest. Uh, Newman attempted uh, a reply to that and just got longer and longer and got out of hand and ended up being his, his great uh, whole work, the Apologia. Interestingly, his direct reply to Newman, only about, uh, sorry to Kingsley, occupies only a few pages of that, but it, it, it's a wonderful um, document, which we'll talk about a bit later. In 1879, so that's at the age of 78, he was finally made. Uh, this is a picture of Newman in middle age. He was finally given the red hat and pardoned. Um, <laughs> Uh, this is a famous portrait of Cardinal. There's only about four or five famous pictures of Newman. I put them all in here, so you're probably familiar with all of them. This is another picture of Newman. Sorry, this is Newman's coat of arms and his famous motto, Cor et Cor, Locuteur, Heart Speaks to Heart. Uh, there's another couple of pictures of Newman. That's a lovely one, and that's, that's a, a painting sort of towards the end of his life. What did he mean by Heart Speaks to Heart? Um, well, I don't know if he, he actually explained it, but it, but I think it, it's very much the idea that you don't get you don't win converts by hitting people over the head with the faith, which he believed was sort of the attitude of the Catholic Church at the time, and um, that got him into a lot of trouble later. But but that was what he that was what he stood for. It was just my understanding of it. He died in 1890. Um, in 1991, he's 19 this time. He was declared venerable. So that's more than a century after his death, which is an enormously long uh, space of time, considering how revered Newman was in the church, and uh, particularly how influential he was in the writing of the um, schemas for the Second Vatican Council. Uh, it's been quoted by many people that he was probably the main influence on the, the schemas that were written for the Second Vatican Council. It was an enormous influence. So it seems amazing to me that it's only... Um, 30 years after the, or almost 30 years after the council, uh, about 26 years after the end of the council, he was declared venerable. And of course, on the 19th of September 2010, he was beatified.
Now, what I mainly wanted to do was to talk about an article which probably many of you will have read because it was published in the Sydney Morning Herald and very widely around the world. Um, this was uh, an essay by John Cornwell, or actually a, a, um, a quote from, uh, one of, from John Cornwell's forthcoming or recently published book. That's John Cornwall there. For those who are not familiar with this character, um, he apparently was a Catholic, uh, left the church um, during his adolescence and then in his adulthood uh, claims to have come back to the church. So I don't think he's really come all the way back. In fact, I don't think he's come that far at all. But um, a number of years ago, he wrote a book about Pope John Paul I, soon after the death of John Paul I, in which he looked at all the conspiracy theories and so forth. That book was this one here. No, it's not. Sorry, yes, it's book on Newman. I got my order wrong. I should be using my, my little order here. Um, book on Newman called Newman's Unquiet Grave, um, which we'll come back to. The second book, or rather his first, earliest book, was A Thief in the Night. This is the, the book about the death of John Paul I. Is he writing as a Catholic? Well, that's an interesting question. To be honest, I've never read any of his books. He certainly doesn't sound much like a Catholic. <coughs> or, the same credibility as Hitler's Pope. Yes. Which is coming up in a moment. That's right. Uh, he wrote a couple of books, apparently, about John Paul II. This one here called The Pontiff in Winter. And uh, the next one called Breaking Faith. Um, I confess I said I haven't read any of his books. He wrote... Oh, he was, sorry, I forgot to mention he actually... Entered the seminary at one stage. Um, and this is a book about the seminary, called Seminary Boy. Um, anyway, back over further. Alright, so I'm just going to uh, quote all bits and pieces from this article. It's too long to read in its whole. As I said, it's a quote from his book. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just quote this is John Cornwall. Since his death in 1890, Newman's following has consisted mostly of university educated Catholics in Britain. Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and especially the Irish Republic. Well, that's fair enough. Paradoxically, in view of his imminent beatification, John Henry Newman has always been a source of inspiration to Catholic liberals for his tendency to see both sides of every question and to follow conscience wherever it may lead. Well, it's this clever mixture of, of truth and falsehood. Um, to say that Newman stood for his tendency to see both sides of every question and to follow conscience wherever it may lead, I think is absolutely an excellent, spot-on depiction of Newman. But um, his implication that it's liberals who normally do that, I think, is very far off the mark. Um, anyway, uh, Cornwall goes on. So what is Newman's story? He is simply the most electrifying religious thinker and writer in English of the past 200 years. I'm not going to argue with that. Subtle, imaginatively, imaginative, deeply learned, at times maddeningly paradoxical and dialectical. James Joyce and Gerard Manley Hopkins claimed that he was the finest English prose stylist of the 19th century. Uh, James Joyce, as I'm sure most of you are aware, was um, scarcely what one would call an orthodox Catholic. He left the church completely under uh, not particularly good terms. But he actually wrote in a letter to someone... Nobody has ever written English prose that can be compared to that of a tiresome, footling little Anglican parson who afterwards became a prince of the only true church. Yeah. So it's not a bad quote for someone who, as I said, left the church completely on rather bad terms. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins, the next picture. Um, 
generally regarded as one of the greatest of the Victorian, the late Victorian poets, um, and, and certainly very much a modernist poet for his time. Um, he was an, an Anglican who was very interested in, in Catholicism and read heaps of Newman and basically was converted by reading Newman. Well, he completed his conversion by reading Newman. And he wrote to Newman. He looks like a priest there. Well, he, he was at that stage, yes. He wrote to Newman and um, went to visit him and, and said Newman was, um, was, was wonderful. He said he was very kind, very sensible. He asked questions which made it clear for me how to act. Uh, and was received to the church by Newman in 1866. He subsequently became a Jesuit priest and wrote this wonderful poetry um, and sent it to the Jesuit magazine, all of which was rejected by the Jesuits. And about 100 years later, they wrote him an apology for it. It was a bit late then. As I said, now it's regarded as one of the great poets of, of the late 19th century in English. Okay, back to Cornwall. His Apologia Pro Vita Sua is by common consent the greatest spiritual autobiography since St. Augustine's Confessions. A literary workaholic, he prayed with a pen in his hand. Believing in Christianity, he thought, was like falling in love. His motto, heart speaks unto heart. Bullying and clever arguments, he said, do not bring us to God. So I think Cornwall's spot on there. Um, that's about where it stops. As a Catholic, he continued to write prolifically, but the Vatican was suspicious of his writings. They were too independent, too English. A Vatican Monsignor said he was the most dangerous man in England and should be crushed. Newman complained, if I put anything into print, propaganda, the Vatican answers me at once. How can I fight with a chain on my arm? It is like the Persians driven to fight under the lash. Um, that's a bit disturbing, but that actually isn't, isn't very far from the truth. Uh, he had two particular enemies in, in the Vatican. Um, in particular, Monsignor George Talbot, who was the papal chamberlain to Pope Pius IX, um, had an enormous dislike of, of Newman and, and total distrust, for whatever reason, I don't know. Uh, but, but he didn't trust anything that Newman, Newman did or said. And um, spread the most bizarre stories about him. Um, he wrote, for example, that if a check if a check is not placed on the laity of England, they will, this is sorry this this is after Newman wrote his his little essay on consulting the laity in matters of doctrine. Uh, Talbot wrote that if a check be not placed on the laity of England, they will be the rulers of the Catholic Church in England instead of the Holy See and the Episcopate. Laymen are beginning to show the cloven hoof. What is the providence of the province of the laity? To hunt, to shoot, to entertain? These matters they understand. But to meddle with ecclesiastical matters they have no right at all. Dr Newman is the most dangerous man in England and you will see, see that he will make use of the laity against your grace. I presume he was writing to Cardinal Wiseman at this stage. I'm not quite sure. Um, Newman heard reports coming from Rome um, that apparently Monsignor Talbot was telling people that, that Newman had contributed money to the cause of Garibaldi, um, which was very much not the truth. The other problem that, that uh, Newman had in Rome was Propaganda Fide, or the Society for the Propagation of the Faith. Um, England at that time, since it had only just re-established its hierarchy, was still regarded as the equivalent of a mission country. So they would put, like all the mission countries around the world, they were put under propaganda fide. And um, 
this was not very much to, to Newman's liking. He said, propaganda is a quasi-military power, extraordinary for missionary countries, rough and ready. It does not understand an intellectual movement. It likes quick results, scalps from beaten foes by the hundred. Our bishop once on his return to Rome said pointedly to me what I am sure came as a quasi-message from propaganda, that at Rome, at Rome they like good news. So they didn't want anything particularly controversial. Anyway, to go back to, to Cornwall. As for Newman's relationships, his friendship with the priest Ambrose Syndrome was not widely known until recently. He was interred in St John's grave at Rednall on the outskirts of Birmingham. I wished this as my last, my imperative will. There is no evidence of an active homosexual relationship, but Newman and Syndrome ignored the clerical ban on particular friendships. They were like a married couple in all but the marital bed. They would lie together in death, but they would not be left in peace. Uh, now, there have been quite a few suggestions based on, on this, um, I think it was in the 1950s that, was, that um, it was, it was realised or became publicly known that, that Newman had made this request. And um, I think it sounds extremely well by Ian Kerr in his in his, I say, in his biography of Newman, so I just want to quote a bit from, from Kerr. He said, there was widespread, widespread speculation in the international media that there might have been some kind of homosexual relationship between the two friends. And I love this, this line. In an age that has almost lost the concept of affectionate friendship untouched by sexual attraction, such speculation was no doubt inevitable. So really, it's a comment on our age rather than, than Newman's. Uh, it also reminded me very much, I don't know how many people have seen um, Mel Gibson's movie, The Man Without a Face, but, but that's very much a theme of that movie, which I thought was out very beautifully, that people these days can't seem to understand anything that doesn't have sex in it somewhere. It's just quite extraordinary. Um, certainly, the assumption that the desire to be buried in the same grave as someone else may, if not must, indicate some sort of sexual attraction would have greatly astonished previous generations. And he quotes a few examples. For example, um, C.S. Lewis asked to be buried along with his brother and various other people asked to be buried with other people. And there was no one thought anything of it in those days. It's only in our enlightened times that people come up with this rubbish. He says, There was nothing more natural, then at least, than that Newman should want humbly to show his gratitude by directing that he, a famous cardinal, should be buried in the same grave as that of a comparatively unknown priest, his faithful friend and collaborator. In addition, he must have feared that his community might wish to erect the kind of tomb that would normally be erected for a cardinal, and he just wanted a humble grave. In the same grave as Syndrome, between the graves of Joseph Gordon and Edward Caswell, he would lie among the three men who, in Newman's words, in past years gave themselves up to me generously and unreservedly, and who had been the life and centre of the oratory. He also mentions that the public, publication of Newman's autobiographical writings in 1957 made this evidence available. Sorry, made, made further evidence available, I should say. Uh, we find Newman, age 15, praying in his private journal to be preserved from the temptations that awaited him on his return home from boarding school for the Christmas holidays. The only two temptations he specifically mentions are dances and parties. The implication is clear. There he will meet girls from whom he is shielded at a boys' boarding school. 
that he has reached the age of puberty is clear from his references to the sins and temptations of the flesh, also because of his belief that it would be the will of God that he should lead a single life. He'd written in the Apologia, my calling in life would require such a sacrifice as celibacy involved. The only sacrifice that he could possibly mean would be that of marriage. Um, in other words, if he'd, if he'd been worried about um, homosexuality, he'd be worried being at the boys' boarding school, not when he was on holiday. So it's the, the very reverse of what... And this is like something written for his private diary, not for any publication. So, I mean, the idea of, of any sort of homosexual feeling in Newman is, on the evidence of it, just absurd. But they kept mentioning it. Mm-hmm. One thing that actually shocked me in researching this, I found um, on the internet that there are some... Um, traditionalist Catholic uh, websites which just go along with all this rubbish they, they, they're quite convinced that Newman was homosexual, that he was a liberal that you know, all of this sort of stuff it's just amazing in total agreement with John Cornwall it's just quite bizarre anyway, back to John Cornwall uh, but why had, why had Pope Benedict, a rigid conservative seen fit to hasten the beatification of a man who has an iconic stature for liberal Catholic intellectuals throughout the liberal English-speaking world. If there was ever an exaggeration, that's it. All becomes clear with Benedict's revision of John Henry Newman's legacy. The Pope and Cardinal and Catholic officialdom are presenting Newman as an exemplar of unquestioning papal allegiance. The Cardinal has been pontifically hijacked. Well, what a load of rubbish. Um... Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the Biglietto speech. Um, Biglietto was apparently Italian for a ticket, and in this case it meant the little official notice that he'd been created a cardinal, which was handed to him before the actual uh, ceremony, and he had to give this speech before he was actually proclaimed a cardinal. And in this speech he said, For 30, 40, 50 years I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Never did Holy Church need champions against it more sorely than now, when, alas, it is an error overspreading as a snare the whole earth. And on this great occasion, when it is natural for one who is in my place to look out upon the world and upon Holy Church as in it, and upon her future, it will not, I hope, be considered out of place if I renew the protest against it which I have made so often. Liberalism in religion is the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. And this is the teaching which is gaining substance and force daily. It is inconsistent with any recognition of any religion as true. It teaches that all are to be tolerated, for all are matters of opinion. Revealed religion is not a truth, but a sentiment and a taste, not an objective fact, not miraculous and it is the right of each individual to make it say just what strikes his fancy. So this is the man who is being regarded as an iconic, uh, of iconic stature for, for Catholic liberals. He was, as you said, he devoted his whole life. You might remember that his first principle when he, when he started out on his quest uh, in his Anglican days, the first principle that he stood was, was against liberalism. And he stood against that all his life. Excuse me, Mr. Yeah? Yes? Um, not that I haven't already. <laughs> but uh, how can there be a Catholic liberal if a liberal says that all religions are valid? Well, this is, this is, the, um, this is the, the great 
problem. I mean, are they in fact Catholics? Um, have they in fact become, ipso facto, excommunicated those who, who preach this extreme liberalism? Um, I'm inclined to think that they have, but um, I'm not an expert on these matters. But certainly, certainly, I mean, a very large number of, of the theological world, Catholic theological world, regard themselves as liberal and, and have these bizarre notions and have for the last 50 years, uh, 45 years perhaps. Um, yeah, I don't know. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, anyway, just, just to, well, a bit more about uh, from Cornwall. Addressing the bishops of England and Wales in Rome in February, the Pope declared that Newman was an example to the world of opposition to dissent. It was like saying that Churchill had been a Trotskyite all along. Well, I mean, he's just just, just, just beyond um, sense of any sort there. Royal Catholics, in other words, should keep their mouths shut. Interestingly, um, this thing about why there's such an incredible uh, reactionary like Benedict, uh, how, why is he so keen to to beatify the great liberal Newman um, is particularly ironic, I think, because um, Cardinal Ratzinger in his time was far more closer to the liberal idea than, than Newman ever was. Um, he, he was regarded as very much on the on the extreme. Um, I wouldn't like to use the word left because I, I think political analogies are improper, inappropriate. But but on the um, on the on the side of progressive thought of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and as I said, far more I think than Newman ever was. So it just it just shows you how absurd Cornwall's whole argument is. Um, according to the Pope, truth, religious truth is articulated by the Church's mag- magisterium. Cardinal Newman realised this, Benedict concluded, and he left us an outstanding example of faithfulness to revealed truth by following that kindly light wherever it led him, even at pers- considerable personal cost. And then uh, commenting on this, Cornwall says, Newman had a jaundiced view of the papacy, especially an ageing one. Now this is the, the, the difficult bit. It is an anomaly, he wrote, and bears no good fruit. He, the Pope, becomes a god, has no one to contradict him, does not know facts, and does cruel things without meaning it. He described the papacy of his day, Pius IX, as a climax of tyranny, He even accused him of heresy for narrowing the lines of communion, trembling at freedom of thought, and using the language of dismay and despair at the prospect before us. Well, I read this and I thought, well, what a load of garbage. And in my research, I found to my horror that this basically does consist primarily of actual quotes from Newman, um, which... Right, I said, the the actual quotes you do actually come from from Newman's letters. So this is this is the most difficult bit to try to, to explain this. How do we how do we reconcile this with the fact of, of, of Newman's sanctity? First thing I'd mention is that he's quoted little bits from two out of the twenty thousand letters that, that Newman wrote, and only very selective bits of that. Out of context, right? Um, partly out of context, yeah. <coughs> What, this is what um, Newman actually said. Now, the, the context, I'll, I'll just give the context. Um, this goes back to the time just after the First Vatican Council. It's, it's well known, I think, that Newman had been in opposition to the idea of the, the declaration that the Pope was infallible. And the reason that he was opposed to it was because 
there was a lot of ultramontanism, in, in, particularly the English clergy that he was familiar with. Um, ultramontanism is basically the idea that, that just about every, virtually every word of the Pope's is infallible, and we've got to you know, follow exactly what he says without question, and that he can make no errors. Uh, and, and Newman was very concerned about that idea. I think Newman was particularly worried. Um, when, when, there are a lot of his friends from, the, uh, that had, from his Anglican days in the Oxford movement who'd, been, who'd come along most of the way to him but had just stopped short of entering Rome. I'm sure he still want, looked forward to the conversion of many of them to the Catholic Church. And he thought uh, if, if the Church takes a really radical step at the moment, uh, then that could be the, the thing that would, would really deter these people from coming in. Was the Oxford movement high, is that the High Anglican Church? Well, they, it, it, it developed into the High Anglican Church, yes. And was he hoping that it would be a step towards Catholicism and then that would be it? I, I don't know whether he ever articulated that clearly. He may have. I'm, as I said, I'm not familiar <coughs> enough with it. But, but certainly, he, he was, as far as the, the people that were involved with him, um, well, yeah, I suppose, no, yes, he did, did hope that that would be. He, he hoped that people would join him because, um, I mean, he pointed out the errors of, of uh, the Anglican Church and, and um, what, and, and he didn't sort of just point out, you know, Rome's right and, and Anglican's wrong because it was a developing thing. He himself, when he started out, he was very strictly Anglican. And so over the years in the Oxford movement, what actually happened was in his, in his tracts that, that were published, he, gave, he showed his actual conversion experience and his final tract called Tract 90, which is the one that caused a huge uproar, is, is completely Catholic from start to finish and that was the one that let him going into the church. But certainly he, he hoped as many Anglicans as possible would join him. There was no doubt that he wanted that. And some of them did, quite a few of them did. Um, but anyway, so... Um, yeah, what had happened was that the, the First Vatican Council had occurred, uh, the Pope had been declared infallible, and um, certainly Newman at the time was quite relieved when he saw the definition. The definition, as I'm sure you're aware, was that when the Pope declares something to be a matter of... Um, what's, what's, the, what's the right wording? Faith and yeah, yeah, uh, something, that, something that has to be believed. It's any matter of faith and morals, any... I've got it all mixed up. Any, any matter of faith and morals is, which is declared by the church is something that we must, declared by the Pope is something we must believe, then he's infallible in proclaiming that. So that's ex-cathedra, right? That's what's known as ex-cathedra, yeah. <coughs> um, so it was quite moderate compared to what some of them were hoping for. But what happened was... Um, what's, hold on. Okay. This is, by the way, this is Cardinal Wise, and I should have looked at that picture earlier. Uh, as I mentioned, he was the first... Um, Cardinal Archbishop uh, at the restoration of the Catholic monarchy in England and he was uh, an influence on, on Newman at, at, in the early days in coming to the church but unfortunately um, Wiseman was one of those ultramontanists who had a very extreme view of uh, infallibility which put him on, you know, rather at odds with Newman. Also, next slide, uh, this is, this is um, Cardinal as he became Manning. Manning was another Anglican, another member of the uh, Oxford movement who came, became a Catholic around about the same time, I think it was about a year or so after, after Newman. And he was made a, a, an archbishop and a cardinal long before Newman became a cardinal. Um, I, I've only seen two pictures. It's a rather emaciated looking fellow there, but the other picture, which is a, a painting, 
probably the most unflattering portrait I've ever seen in my life. It looks as if they've, they've dug up this corpse and put it in cardinal's robes and, and sort of set him on the throne. It, it just... Um, maybe he lived a very ascetic lifestyle, I'm not quite sure. Anyway, that's uh, Manny. But Manny was, was, was extremely ultra-modernist and he had this very extreme view of infallibility. And he had published an article uh, in one of the Catholic journals um, giving his view of, of infallibility, which is this extreme, virtually everything the Pope says goes. Sort of thing. And Newman was very upset by that. And a, a, a friend of his, a lady whose name I can't remember, it doesn't matter anyway, had written to Newman that, that she was disturbed by this article of Manning's. And Newman replied, uh, the Archbishop only does what he has done all along. He, he ever has exaggerated things and ever has acted towards individuals in a way which they thought to be unfailing. And now, as I think most cruelly, he is fearfully exaggerating what has been done at the Council. The Pope is not infallible in such things as you instance. So she obviously gave examples of, of matters not of faith and morals. Therefore, I say confidently that you may, dis may dismiss all such exaggerations from your mind, though it is a cruel penance to know that the bishop where you are, puts them forth. It is an enormous tyranny. For myself, I think that a new world is coming in and that the Pope's change of position, which in spite of any temporary reaction which may come is inevitable, will alter matters vastly. We have come to a climax of tyranny. Now, as you know, you might have remembered um, Cornwall said that he, he regarded Pius IX's, Pius IX's papacy as a climax of tyranny. Well, Newman said, we are coming we have come to a climax of tyranny, which is definitely not the same thing. And then he did say, it is not good for a pope to live 20 years. It is a novelty and bears no good fruit. It's not good for a pope to live? To live for 20 years as pope. Um, yes, he did say this. It is a novelty and bears no good fruit. He, be, he even said he becomes a god, lowercase g. Has no one to contradict him. Now, he obviously means that he becomes a god in the minds of the Catholics. I think that's implied by what he just said there. For example, in the car, uh, he obviously doesn't mean in the Pope's own mind. Has no one to contradict him, does not know facts, and does cruel things without meaning it. What I think he's referring to there is the fact that um, if the Pope's view of Newman and what was happening in England were very, very much uh, prejudiced by the views of. His, his chamberlain, Monsignor Talbot, who was totally opposed to Newman and, and others, others there. So would Talbot have influenced the Pope? Oh, very much so. Because, um, I mean, he, uh, he was English himself, as far as I'm aware, uh, and so the, the Pope would naturally turn to him for any news on England or English people, so he would be his source of information. And so the Pope would, would be totally prejudiced against Newman as a result of that. What, what, was his, what was Torbett's interest in doing that? I mean, what did he get out of it? I, I think he just, he just didn't trust Newman. I, I think he's probably genuine, but he just didn't trust him. He was a man of very limited imagination. He was a person who wants everything black and white. And Newman believed in looking at things from both sides, uh, which was not a very popular view at the time. Anyway, to go back to Newman, so for years my only concern, oh, and, and um, you notice that, that uh, Cornwall, of course, doesn't quote this bit. Uh, for many years past, my only consolation has been in our Lord's presence in the tabernacle. I turn from the sternness of external authority to him who can immeasurably compensate trials, which after all are not real, 
but to use a fashionable word, sentimental. Never, thank God, have I had a single doubt about the divine origin and grace of the Church on account of the want of tenderness and largeness of mind of some of its officials or rulers. And I think this will be your experience too. Bear up for a, for a while and all will be right. So it still sounds a bit worrying, but that's certainly nowhere near as bad as, as Cornwall paints it. He emphatically did not accuse Pius of heresy. Um, the other quote is from another letter. What he said was, the church is sinking into a sort of uh, novationism, which apparently is the, was the heresy in the early church, which said that uh, people who had renounced the church under threat of death uh, could never come back again. And that was a heresy which was condemned. And um, what, what he was saying was that, that, that um, people in the church were sort of having this idea, that, like, there's, there's sort of very much an us and them sort of mentality. Um, a new wrote, instead of aiming at being a worldwide power, we are shrinking into ourselves, narrowing the lines of communion, trembling at the freedom of thought and using the language of dismay and despair at the prospect before us, instead of the high spirit of the warrior going out conquering and to conquer. So he certainly wanted to conquer for the church. He wanted to conquer the hearts of these Anglicans, particularly those who have been friends of his. Uh, and he thought the church was becoming far too defensive. And that was what was worrying him. And that, that was the context of all of this. Uh, and yes, the, the Pope was in some sense a representative of what was happening. But he certainly didn't ever call the Pope a heretic, as Cornwall claims, and so forth. Um, I think I'll, I'll leave that there because I'm taking it long. Oh no, I will. Uh, finally, oh, I'll get the last. The most dramatic difference between Newman and Benedict involves the role of conscience in the life of the Catholic. What should a Catholic do when individual conscience and patent teaching are at variance? Newman wrote that conscience must always be the final arbiter. If he were to make an after-dinner toast, he wrote, I shall drink to conscience first and to the Pope afterwards. Okay, so that also needs a bit of explanation. Um, that particular quote comes at the end of his letter to the Duke of Norfolk, or rather, no, the end of one section of his his famous letter to the Duke of Norfolk, where he, he explained a great deal of his beliefs. Um, he said, when I speak of conscience, I mean conscience truly so called, when it has the right of opposing the supreme, though not infallible authority of the Pope. In other words, in other words, what he's saying is when it opposes the infallible authority of the Pope, it's wrong. But when it has what it believes that the, the duty of opposing the non-infallible authority of the Pope, it must be something more than that miserable counterfeit which, as I said above, goes by the name. If in a particular case it is to be taken as a sacred and sovereign monitor, its dictate, in order to prevail against the voice of the Pope, must follow upon serious thought, prayer, and all available means of arriving at a right judgment on a matter in question. And further, obedience to the Pope is what's called in possession. That is the onus probandi, that is onus of proof, of establishing a case against him lies, as in all cases of exceptions, on the side of conscience. In other words, you can't just say, well, my conscience goes against the Pope. You need to be able to absolutely prove it. Unless a man is able to say to himself, as in the presence of God, that he must not and dare not act upon the papal injunction, he is bound to obey it and would commit a great sin in disobeying it. Prima facie, it is a bounden duty, even from sentiment of loyalty, to believe the Pope right and to act accordingly. 
He must vanquish that mean, ungenerous, selfish, vulgar spirit of his nature, which at the very first rumour of a command places itself in opposition to the superior who gives it, asks itself whether he is not exceeding its right and rejoices in a moral and practical matter to commence with scepticism. He must have no willful determination to exercise a right of thinking, saying, doing as he pleases. The question of truth and falsehood, right and wrong, the duty, if possible, of obedience, the love of speaking as his head speaks, that's head as capital H meaning the Pope, and of standing in all cases on his head's side, being simply discarded. If this necessary rule were observed, collisions between the Pope's authority and the authority of conscience would be very rare. On the other hand, in the fact that, after all, in extraordinary cases, the conscience of each individual is free, we have a safeguard and security, or security necessary, that no Pope will ever be able, as the objection supposes, to create a false conscience for his own ends. And then he said, certainly, if I'm obliged to bring religion into after-dinner toasts, which indeed does not seem quite the thing, I shall drink to the Pope, if you please, still to conscience first and to the Pope afterwards. Now, I realise um, the, the style there is rather difficult and the argument is a bit complicated, but to clarify, what he's saying is that the Catholic owes a duty of obedience to the Pope. He owes absolute obedience to the Pope when the Pope defines something um, infallibly, that there is no going against that, that we must follow the Pope in all infallible matters and that in non-infallible matters we owe the duty of obedience to the Pope and we must follow him except where we believe very sincerely after having prayed about it and investigated it and everything else that to obey the Pope would be sinful. Um, and there have been cases in history where, where um, Popes have ordered one of their uh, ministers to sack somebody for very unjust reasons and, and the people have refused to do it. And, and that's the sort of condition that, that Newman, I believe, is talking about, where the Pope does... If, if there was a bad Pope, and he wasn't saying that Pius IX was a bad Pope by any means, he, he did believe Pius IX was misled, but he didn't believe he was a bad Pope. But where there was a bad Pope, and there have been some bad Popes, and they've ordered some pretty rotten things, he's saying we have the not only the right, but the duty in conscience to disobey something which we believe would be sinful and only what we believe would be sinful. But in all other things, we owe the obedience to, 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 the, to what the, the Pope says. So it's almost the opposite of, of what the, the construction that Cornwall was placing on it. Um, I think I'll leave... Uh, I suppose he's making necessary distinctions there because he's, he's harangued by all his... his um, you know, his... Um, I think everything that he ever wrote on anything, he was incredibly careful to take every possible uh, contingency in, in, into... That's why some of his books are so long. He just argues every little bit and piece of the, of the case and from all different aspects. And, and what I said was, um, I think the one thing that was... Well, one of the few things that, that Cornwall absolutely got right was when he said that he, he wants to see both sides of the question. And that was what it was what. But he makes that fine distinction. Yes, he makes yes, he makes all this distinction you, very clear. Unless there is a certain intelligence of perception, it could be lost on a lot of people. Oh, absolutely, and and of course all the 
not all, but an awful lot of journalists, I'm just looking on the net tonight, a lot of journalists who are just taking and, and just, just paraphrasing what Cornwall has said and, and just how this Pope is just trying to twist Newman and, and pervert him into a follower of his and, and all this garbage. Um, okay, what I'd like to do now is, is just talk about some of the um, influence of Newman, some of the people that, that were that were that were affected by Newman. Cardinal Manning, as I, I may have mentioned, was uh, a member of the Oxford movement who was maybe not directly, but was certainly part of the, the influence of Newman. And he became, sorry, he became a Catholic six years after Newman. It wasn't one year. Got that wrong. He was the son of uh, a, an MP. He was a, an Anglican archbishop, but he ended up the archdeacon rather. Became a Catholic archbishop and then a cardinal. And although um, Manning and Newman had a lot of disagreements, particularly towards the end and particularly over the matter of the, the um, infallibility definition, um, it's interesting that Manning uh, preached, I don't know if it was at Newman's funeral, but anyway, after Newman died, and said, we have lost our greatest witness for the faith and we are all the poorer and the lower by the loss. So Manning obviously still had a great deal of respect for him. Uh, a couple of other people. Next is... Uh, anybody recognise any of these people? I'll see if there's a competition. Anybody recognise anyone? Uh, no, no. No, no. That's, that's um, Sir Edward Elgar, the composer, who um, be, was brought up a Catholic. Uh, I don't know. He was converted at a young age. Whether his conversion was influenced by Newman or not, I'm not sure. But he was greatly by, influenced by Newman after his conversion and read a great deal of of Newman, and of course he was the one who wrote the musical setting for Newman's Dream of Gerontius, uh, which is quite famous. He also uh, wrote the songs Lean of Hope and Glory. That's correct, Pomp yeah. The, the Pomp and Pomp Circumstance Marches. Number two, I think, wasn't it? That I don't one. know. Yeah. Uh, next we have... Uh, anyone recognise him? No, this is Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. Benson was the son of the Archbishop of Canterbury, so he was a great loss to the Anglican Church. Uh, and he was converted after reading Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine, which he said showed me how the church stood upon the unshakable foundations of the gospel and soared to heaven. Isn't that a beautiful poem? Um, and he, of course, became an archbishop, not an archbishop, I'm sorry, a, a monsignor uh, in the Catholic Church. He was a famous writer, read some, some excellent Catholic novels, uh, most notably Lord of the, of the World. Come rack, come rope, etc. Um, anybody recognise him? This is the famous architect Augustus Pugin, the leader of the Gothic revival in, in architecture. And he was enormously influenced by, by Newman, became a Catholic soon after Newman. Uh, he, of course, um, uh, constructed quite a few churches in Australia uh, as well as in Britain. He's uh, quite prolific with his architecture. Um, I'm guessing nobody will recognise this gentleman. Grace. This is uh, Francis Bernard. Now you're probably saying, who is Francis Bernard? You've probably all heard of all, all heard of Gilbert and Sullivan. Well, before Gilbert teamed up with Sullivan, um, Bernard wrote a, 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 an operetta with uh, Sullivan. So Bernard and Sullivan actually preceded Gilbert and Sullivan. It was called Cox and Box, and it was a very amusing little operetta. Um, he subsequently. Uh, he was actually going to um, become a priest. He joined the community of the Oblates of St. Charles Borromeo, Borromeo, I should say, of which Cardinal Manning was the superior. But he left them and um, became editor of Punch. 
and was knighted for services to the poem. And probably nobody recognised the next gentleman either. That's St George Jackson Nevote, who was a biologist, and initially he was a, a very fervent supporter of Charles Darwin, until he realised that the Darwin's ideas were, were leading, uh, leading inevitably to agnosticism or atheism, uh, upon which time he, he became a very fervent um, critic of Darwin. And of course, Darwin didn't quite know what was going on with him, but um, he wrote very strongly against Darwin at that time. Unfortunately, he got himself excommunicated later, which is very sad. But um, um, he he didn't believe in the eternity of hell, and he wrote publicly about that. He thought the merciful God wouldn't condemn anyone for all eternity, or something of that nature. Yes, well, she wasn't a Catholic, so she was allowed to, I suppose. Um, all right, next is, um, this is uh, George Robinson, the Marquess of Ripon, who was um, an English nobleman. Uh, he was very strongly involved in the English government in all sorts of capacities. Um, and then, at one stage, when he was, when he was young, he, he picked up uh, a breviary, a Catholic breviary, in a second-hand bookshop, and he started praying it. I wish he stopped after a while, but then his brother died and he was deeply moved to do something. And he just thought back to his previous experiences and he went to a Catholic church and went to Mass and was very impressed and then started reading Newman and became a Catholic. And he said, under, uh, under God I, I owe that greatest of blessings, the blessing of belonging to the Catholic church, to Newman. So my impression from that, that trend is personalities that you've presented is that it suggests or connotes that uh, he appealed to the intellect, but did he appeal to the masses? I mean, could he get more people converted? Um, that, that's a very good question. Uh, of course, people don't talk very much about the anonymous converts, do they? So it's difficult to know more about them. Um, I, I think two things you have to take into account. One is, I, I'm sure he did in some cases. I mean, in a personal sense, um, he People related to him very well. I mean, he related very well to the common people from all the evidence, even though he was very much um, you know, preaching to the intellectuals and writing for them and so forth. He did relate very well to the common people, and he probably did have a big impact. The other thing is, these people that I'm quoting, there's a big flow-on effect, I think, from that. Um, and I'm many of these people convert others and so forth. But no, I can't speak from any direct, nothing that I know of. I've got no problem that he speaks to you because sometimes the, the, the most proud people are the ones with the brains, you know. <laughs> so, um, so I, I think probably yes, but I, I can't say for sure. Yeah, I'm not okay, next person, anyone recognise this gentleman? He should recognise him. Chesterton. Chesterton, of course. Um, now there was some. Con- I'm, I'm, I was going to. I was trying to. I read, read something about the connection between Chesterton and Newman, and then I lost it. And I tried to find it again. There was. I mean, Chesterton uh, was a follower of Newman to some extent. I don't know to what extent, but he, he did read him at some stage. So I can't say more than that. I'm sorry. Next we have. Anyone recognise him? Mm-hmm. Very well known priest. Englishman. Englishman. All uh, Mostly. Uh, well, big, big, huge hint. Translated the Bible. Yeah, Count Count Ronald Knox. Ron, Ron, Ron. It's great. It's sorry, it's not Count Knox. My Ronald Knox. That's right. I'm sorry. Yes, of course. Um, yeah, he he was very greatly uh, influenced by Newman, either before or after his conversion. I'm not quite sure which. Uh, next, we have 
Anyone recognize him? Probably not. Uh, a poet, a war poet. Sassoon. Sassoon, Siegfried Sassoon, very good one. Um, and once again, I'm not quite sure, there was some connection with Newman. It may have been a fairly tenuous one, but he was influenced by him in his conversion or after his conversion. Yeah. Next we have, anyone recognise him? Great Catholic scholar? Historian? No, historian. That's Christopher Dawson. The, the, probably the, the greatest um, Catholic historian of, of recent recent centuries, I, I would imagine. Plus, Stanley has often quoted him. Yes, yes, a lot of people quote him. One absolutely brilliant writer. I've got to read more of him. I've only read one of his books. And just wonderful, yeah. Um, he, he was, his conversion was very much influenced by reading Newman's Apologia. He studied Newman carefully and he, he found a lot of comparisons between Newman's life and his own and, and just sort of really thought this, this guy... Well, of course, Newman was long dead by this time, but he thought a close connection. And this is about the 19th. 20s or 30s, I think. I'm not sure he's still writing into the 60s, wasn't it? Probably. I'm not sure exactly how when he died. Yeah. Okay. Next one. Oh, you must recognise him, surely. Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody? Adult recognise him. That's, yeah, J.R. Tolkien. Oh. Now, the, Tolkien, the connection with Tolkien is an interesting one. I can't really say his conversion was directly influenced by Newman because he was eight when he became a Catholic. However, um, uh, his, what would have happened was um, his father had died, his mother was looking after, uh, I think, well, it was three children, wasn't it? Two boys and a girl. Um, and on very little money, and she'd moved to an area where she came in contact with uh, a Catholic cha- chaplain called Father Francis Xavier Morgan, who was a member of, New- of Newman's own community and had himself been very much influenced by Newman and, and spoke a lot about Newman. And um, he influenced uh, Mrs. Tolkien very much and, and she became a Catholic and had her children baptised as well. Uh, and when she, in her will, she named Father Morgan as Tolkien's guardian. So, so for, from, I forget what, how old he was, his mother died, I think he was about 12 or something, I'm not sure. Um, so ba- basically, Father Morgan brought him up after that, until the time that he was left to get married, really. Um, well known, very well known. Jimmy <laughs> English, author. <laughs> That's Graham Green in his early years. Um, Green uh, well, Green is a very strange character, as you probably know, uh, but he, he, he read quite a bit of Newman and he used to quote Newman a lot. Um, his book, The Lawless Rose, begins with a great big long quote from Newman and he, he often talked about Newman. It, um, one particular favourite quote of Newman that he mentioned all the time was that when Newman said it's impossible to have a, a sinless Catholic literature or something like that. Or you can't have a, a sinless literature of sinful man. And, um, a sinless a sinless literature of sinful man. In other words, you, like if you're talking about humanity, you've got to talk about sin. And uh, Green thought that was a great justification for his own writing. Um, so, so Green was... Oh, come on, you must recognise him short. So, no, Evelyn Waugh. <laughs> okay, right. Um, and, and he was also uh, influenced by, by Newman. That's Evelyn Waugh. And um, I think Green and Newman both had some connection with some school connected with Newman, but I've forgotten, so I won't push that analogy. Next, 
Come on, you must know. Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, yes. Now, what's the connection with Wilde? Um, Wilde read some of Newman at an early age and was very influenced by him and wanted to become a Catholic. In fact, he was actually in his youth determined to become a Catholic, but his parents refused to allow him. And he later said, whether rightly or wrongly, I don't know, but that his moral troubles could have been prevented if he'd been allowed to become a Catholic. Mm-hmm. Now, that may have been wishful thinking, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But, really, um, you can see with Oscar Wilde, it's really reflected in his son, especially in his children's stories. Yes, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, particularly the selfish giant. That is yeah, a beautiful that. story. Uh, oh, we, sorry, um, what Angela was saying is that, that you can see a lot of the, the Catholicism or the influence of Catholicism coming through in Newman's children's stories, particularly, I think, that the, is it the Happy Prince? The Happy Prince and the Selfish Giant. And the Selfish Giant, yeah. The Selfish Giant is one of the most beautiful oh, short stories. I always cry every time. Yeah, it's, yeah. That's quite wild. Did I say? Oh, sorry, wild. Yeah. Okay, it's I apologize. It's interesting because I, I, was, I was listening to a hearing book about his wife, and when he was having his homosexual affairs with the family had a family friend who was devoted to the rosary and he gave Oscar Wilde's wife some rosary beads and taught her how to pray the rosary and she kept praying the rosary rosary. and and at the very end when he was released from prison for homosexuality he was treated very very well he was just scorned by most people and he said he was walking down the street and he saw a man walk, walking the other way, coming towards him. And this man tipped his hat and kept walking because he could see that Bob was embarrassed. So he just tipped his hat. And that little sign changed him and he began to recover from that and then developed the fully pursuit more of the Catholic idea. That man who tipped his hat was the same man who had given his wife the rosary. Really? I can't repeat all that. I'm sorry, Alec. That's, that's a beautiful story. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, it's, it's about this man who'd, who'd given Oscar Wilde's wife a rosary and taught her to say the rosary. And, and um, certainly her saying the rosary could have been a big influence on Wilde's own uh, deathbed conversion. Wilde wrote at one stage, I'm not sure when he wrote this, but he said, I have dreams of a quiet visit to Newman. Obviously this was early on because it was during, during Newman's life. I have dreams of a quiet visit to Newman, of the holy sacraments in the new church, and of a peace and quiet afterwards in my soul. It must have been in his youth. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, next we have anyone? Probably not. I didn't yeah. recognise her. That's Muriel Spark. Never heard of her. Um, oh, she's a, a, a very well-known um, novelist. We recently voted one of the hundred greatest female writers in Britain of the, of the 20th century. Um, both famously wrote The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie and Rocket McBells. Anyway, she um, at one stage, for some reason, I don't know how it happened, but she became obsessed with the Book of Job and the writings of Cardinal Newman. And she just <laughs> was so upset that she followed Newman into the Catholic Church and was a Catholic for the rest of her life. Next one, that should be easy. Any guesses, Robert? <laughs> That, that is Father Faber. Yeah. Um, Faber was a very enthusiastic follower of Newman, but unfortunately they, they, they didn't end up having a lot of problems together. Um, 
Faber actually said that Newman's influence was like a very powerful depth charge going down and exploding every so often with ever greater force, the outward movement of the shock waves getting larger and larger until it meets the shore, which I think is a magnificent uh, explanation of Newman's effect on, on the world, on, on England particularly at the time. A very powerful depth charge going down and exploding every so often with every great, ever greater force, the outward, outward movement of, of the shock waves getting larger and larger until it meets the shore. Well, he must have been speaking about these intellectuals that Yes, and, and the fact that it, it took many years. In fact, a lot of these people were influenced after Newman, by Newman after his death, certainly. Uh, and unfortunately, as I said, there were a lot of problems. Um, the problems began when um, Father Faber and some of his other priests... Oh, they, they said... Sorry, they... Um, Newman was at the Birmingham Oratory, and then a second oratory was set up in London, and Faber became head of that oratory, and the two oratories didn't get on very well together. Uh, Faber and the others were putting together a, a book of lives of the saints, which Newman originally supported very enthusiastically, but then he found um, two things that quite disturbed him. One was that they would sort of put down every story of a miracle, no matter how authenticated or otherwise it might seem, and, and, um, Newman, and Newman thought this would not appeal to the intellectuals particularly in the, the Anglican Church who would just laugh it out of court. And secondly, that he tended to be very disparaging um, to the Anglicans. And, and um, yeah, of course, Newman was hoping to convert these Anglicans and he thought insulting them was definitely not the way to go. He was a, a believer in heart speaks to heart. And um, there were the problems between Faber and Newman, as I understand, ever since then, ever, ever after that. And apparently Faber would often, often write... Um, to Rome about his problems with Newman and that was that sort of contributed to Newman getting a, a worse name in Rome than, than he was before. So why is Henry, John Henry Newman a saint? Why is anyone a saint? I mean, is it because he was a great intellectual? Obviously not. Was it because he wrote wonderful books? Obviously not. Um, why does anyone become a saint? Because they do the will of God. And that really is what it comes down to. He did the will of God. Very quietly in many cases, very steadfastly, he refused to be swayed from what he believed. Uh, he suffered an enormous amount because of what he believed and what he said and what he wrote. But he, he wouldn't compromise, but he was always faithful, despite what John Cornwall said. He never disputed or denied the authority of the Pope, um, except in those very extreme cases which, which we mentioned before. He was faithful to death and uh, in many ways he, he suffered an enormous amount. He had many trials in his life. Um, he wrote, when, when he was converted, he wrote, I've been in perfect, this is in his apologia, it was actually, I think it was 19 years after his conversion. I've been in perfect peace and contentment. I have never had one doubt. But, later, but he also wrote around the same time, and as, a, as a Protestant, I felt my religion dreary, but not my life. But as a Catholic, my life was dreary, but not my religion. Actually, that um, almost seems like a contradiction. Because yes, well, there is this paradoxical nature. intellects in his orbit, you know, that he yeah. must have had some wonderful dialogues with them. I think Yes. yes. I think when a person gets really, really, really close to God, the 
hunger for God surpasses everything else, even even the life that's surrounding life. Yeah, oh yes, absolutely. The hunger for God surpasses everything in, in sanctity. But yes, absolutely. That, that's what sanctity is all about. It's closer and closer. Um, uh, interesting. Um, the French Archbishop Jean Honoré wrote a book about Newman, and he said the Catholic life of Newman offers the very disconcerting spectacle of a man who never knew any success. That sounds incredibly paradoxical compared to you know, when you think of all his literary successes and so on. But says, at the very moment he became involved in a new field of action and settled into it, the ground gave way beneath him and the project was withdrawn until a new one came along, which was every bit as deceiving as the previous preceding one. And there were numerous examples of this. I'll just give you a few of them. I've mentioned his disagreements at the hands of the Roman officials, especially Monsignor Talbot and Cardinal Bernabo, who was the um, prefect of, of propaganda. His disagreements with Father Faber and the other members of the London Oratory must have been an enormous cross for him to bear, uh, because these were supposed to be his, his brothers in, in the Oratory and um, there seemed to be endless disagreements with them. Um, the, the Dublin University fiasco. Newman was asked that the, the, the Irish uh, bishops wanted to set up a Catholic university because in those days Catholics weren't allowed to attend the, the, the State University in Dublin. And really what they wanted was, you know, we're going to show them we'll have one of our own and, you know, they can go and jump, sort of thing. Um, they didn't really have a sort of deep intellectual lot of thought behind it. And they asked Newman to be rector because they thought he's got a, a good reputation and so forth. But they wanted him to do everything their way, which he didn't want to do. They wanted him initially to talk about, to, to preach about the dangers of mixed study, that is to say Catholics and Protestants studying together. And Newman, Newman, you know, I mean, he had the idea that Catholics can convert non-Catholics and he thought, thought they should be together so that the Catholics can influence them. But the, you know, the Irish bishops thought, no, they've got to keep completely away. So that was a big problem. Um, Newman put a lot of work into trying to, to get the university going and he did get it going and up and running, but um, it just never really took off very well. And really it was the lack of support from the Irish bishops. Once they found out that he wasn't going to do it their way, they just dropped the project and left him to it, pretty much. And eventually it just folded. He actually said he crossed the Irish Sea 56 times in a couple of years, backwards and forwards, setting up the university in Ireland and, doing, and, and, and uh, attending to his responsibilities in England. Um, at the same time this was happening, um, there was a, a, another fiasco that Newman was involved in. There was an Italian priest called Father Achille who had been dismissed from the priesthood, defrocked as they say, um, because of um, sexual indiscretions, uh, including apparently the rape of a 15-year-old girl. Um, but he advertised himself as someone who had been suffered at the hands of the Inquisition because of his opposition to the terrible Romish doctrines and the, the, um, some of the extreme Protestants in England loved him and brought him over to, to preach against the Catholics. I thought this guy's great. And so Cardinal Wiseman wrote and published an article, anonymously though, uh, talking about the, the, the uh, moral situation with, with Father Achille. And Newman wanted to write a more prominent sort of thing. I think it's only had a small publication. 
and he asked for some legal advice and he was told that he would probably get away with it. Um, and so he, he published his article just outlining all the dreadful things that this, this so-called um, champion of truth had, had undergone and uh, what a revolting character he was. Uh, and as it t- turned out, this uh, Father McKillie decided to sue him and, and took him to court. So uh, Newman didn't have any of the initial evidence that, that Wiseman had written about. So he wrote to Cardinal Wiseman and said, well, can you get, I, I've got to go to court on this. Can you give me whatever information you've got? And Newman and, and Wiseman said, yes, OK. But then he couldn't find it, couldn't find his evidence. And so Wiseman apparently wrote to Rome and said, oh, you know, can you send us back what you've got? And um, Wiseman never found the information. Or if he did find it, it wasn't during the time of the court case. Uh, and uh, the information was supposed to be come from Rome. Apparently, Monsignor Talbot took a long time to send it. In fact, by the time he sent it, uh, it was too late for the case. Uh, Newman believed that was deliberate. I don't know whether it was or not, but um, he certainly didn't didn't um, push himself to get the information in quickly. And the result was that Newman lost this case. He had to pay, I think it was a fairly small fine, but a very large amount in court costs. And while he got a lot of donations from, from well-wishers to, to pay his costs, and he was able to pay them. Uh, it was, was really not a very nice sort of experience, although he did totally discredit this, this um, ex-priest and, and his supporters, so it did, did do some good. But it was just, just a, a nasty taste. In fact, that when he wanted support from, from his cardinal and from um, the officials in Rome, you know, they were very quick to, to criticise everything he did, but when he wanted help, they were very slow to do anything to help him. I think it was another big cross he had to bear. Um, he wanted to get an oratory set up at Oxford and an association with an, he wanted to get a Catholic college at the Oxford University. Now that the Dublin one had fallen through. And there was just total opposition uh, this, because of this belief that, that um, mixed education was a very bad idea. You've got to keep Catholics, you've got to shield them from all these terrible Protestants lest they be influenced. And he, he fought very hard for this and was just completely overridden, and everything that he attempted to do seemed to fail. Um, There was the affair of the Rambler. The Rambler was a a Catholic magazine of opinion, which um, was getting in a bit of trouble because it was publishing some things which were a bit dicey, and Cardinal Weissman uh, wanted the editor to resign, but instead of telling himself, he said to Newman, I want you to write and and ask him to resign, which Newman said, I don't want to do that, but he eventually, out of obedience, wrote to this, this editor, Simpson, and asked him to resign. Um, but they had the problem that, that uh, the, the editor wanted to put another editor, which was Lord Acton, who was uh, a, a great opponent of papal infallibility and was the last person that Wiseman would have accepted. And Wiseman suggested something else, but Simpson absolutely would refuse. The other wouldn't accept him. The only person that was acceptable to both of them was Cardinal Newman. He didn't want to do it, but on on uh, Cardinal Wiseman's request, he became the editor of the of the Rambler um, and wrote some articles of his own, including his famous one on consulting laity and matter of doctrine. And he ended up into all sorts of trouble. Um, Wiseman, after putting him into the job, did nothing to support him, and he got very, very much criticised. And Cardinal Bonabo uh, of the um, Propaganda was very concerned because he thought it was. Um, uh, you know, putting too much on, on the laity, and he thought it was was a, a doubtful um, orthodoxy, and asked Newman, oh, you've got 
got Newman, got Wiseman to write to Newman to clarify his position, which Newman did, and he sent these articles back to Wiseman, who forgot, or whatever, to, to pass them on. Um, and then a couple of years later, when Newman um, happened to be in Rome, he found out that uh, there'd been an enormous amount of prejudice against him because these people believed that he had arrogantly refused to reply to their requests when he'd done the right thing and it was Wiseman who hadn't passed it on. And so um, he was just, just yeah, very humiliated by, by this. So yeah, everything was sort of going wrong. There was the matter of paper infallibility when, because he was opposed to the definition of infallibility at that time, uh, he, he was put into the same basket as Dollinger, who was the leader of the, the anti-infallibility crowd, who eventually left the church, whereas Newman had nothing to do with that crowd at all. Stephen, I just noticed you mentioned that name, Lord Acton. You, you, that Lord Acton, you're saying he was against the Pope? He was against the definition of infallibility. Well, well, I find it very interesting because apparently there's a society in America called the Acton Institute, mm-hmm. which is apparently attracting a lot of Catholics. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I don't know if he actually left the church. Yeah, I don't, know, I don't know if he actually left the church or not. I'm, I'm not sure, but he certainly wasn't um, wasn't very popular at my, with, with the hierarchy anyway. Mm, that's interesting. I, I just find it an irony in that. Yeah, and I think what was particularly galling to Newman about this infallibility thing was that um, it put him off, very much offside with people like Cardinal Wiseman, Cardinal Manning. Father Faber, etc., people that, that he would have liked to have had his, as his friends and allies. Um, and what this really led to in his old age was, was the infallibility. Um, oh, no, sorry, sorry, I'll start again. What it led him to was, was a, a deep loneliness. Um, and, and I've got this really nice quote. This is from Father um, Elliot's article about Newman. I'd like to read this bit here. Um, speaking That's about Peter his. Elliot, Father Peter Elliot, yes. Speaking about the, the um, um, becoming a cardinal, it says, Newman lived on for another 11 years, lonely years, for one by one his close friends died. Memories linger around the oratory in Birmingham of these last years, of the aged cardinal climbing up to the library, holding onto a rope attached to the stairs, of the cardinal saying mass in his own oratory, uh, here's a picture of his little, his little private chapel where he said mass in the oratory. Um, set in the corner of his crowded study. A mass where the intentions for the dead were always present in the faded photographs which lined the walls, the faces of the Oxford movement. So his last years were, were years of very great loneliness, both on account of his friends dying and because of, of the the barriers that had come up between him and other people. And I think he died a fairly lonely old man. So he had an enormous, enormous number of trials to suffer in his life, but he remained absolutely faithful throughout them all, despite what the um, journalists say. And I think, really, it, it's more than anything else, it's in his reaction to his trials that he was, that he was a saint. I want to, if I've got a couple of minutes, I just want to quote briefly from... Um, the Holy Father's homily at, at, the, at the beatification. Cardinal Newman's motto, cor ad cor loquitur, or heart speaks unto heart, gives us an insight into his understanding of the Christian life as a call to holiness, experienced as the profound desire of the human heart to enter into intimate communion with the heart of God.
He reminds us that faithfulness to prayer gradually transforms us into the divine likeness, which is what Thal was referring to a moment ago, or a few moments ago. As he wrote in one of his many fine sermons, a habit of prayer, the practice of turning to God in the unseen world in every season, in every place, in every emergency. Prayer, I say, has what may be called a natural effect in spiritualizing and elevating the soul. A man is no longer what he was before. Gradually he has imbibed a new set of ideas and become imbued with fresh principles. Today's Gospel tells us that no one can be the servant of two masters, and blessed John Henry Newman's teaching on prayer explains how the faithful Christian is definitively taken into the service of the one true master, who alone has a claim on our unconditional devotion. Newman helps us to understand what this means for our daily lives. He tells us that our divine master has assigned a specific task to each one of us, a definite service committed to uniquely to every single person. I have my mission, he wrote. I am a link in a chain, a bond of connection between persons. He has not created me for naught. I shall do good. I shall do his work. I shall be an angel of peace, a preacher of truth in my own place, if I do but keep his commandments and serve him in my calling. As I said, he died in 1890 at the age of 89. Um, he was buried together with the this is a, a sorry statue at the Orangery put up for Newman. He was buried together with the remains of his friend, Father um, Ambrose St. together in the grave. And I don't know if you can see that on the grave, but it's got across the middle it says John Henry Cardinal Newman on the, across the middle of the cross. And around the outside it says Ambrose St. John Died. I'll give the date. Yeah. How do you spell Sinji? Oh, well, it's Saint John, but I believe I pronounce it Sinji. I don't know. It's an, it's an English thing to do to call people Saint John and pronounce it Sinji. I don't know why. Okay, I think I'll leave that there then. So, yes. Just one question, Stephen. Do you know of any miracles attributed to? I only know the, the one for the beatification, right. uh, which has apparently been a bit controversial because it was this man who had sudden relief from this back pain, but people said, well, we know, a lot of people get relief from back pain for all sorts of reasons, and it was a very dodgy miracle. Uh, I, I don't know enough about it, I'm not confident to comment on that. I do know it has been, and I don't know of any others. Obviously, for a canonisation, you'll have to have another one. Um, Bob? Yeah, that, that picture there, he's amongst all the other priests of the Oratory. Yeah, he's met buried in the same grave as his friend of his, and the other two priests are buried either side of that grave. Uh -huh. yeah. mm -hmm. uh, so, what is that book you mentioned earlier on in your talk about the Arians in the fourth? fourth century? Uh, well, that's the name of the Arians of the fourth century. So, what, what, what is it? Was that supposed to justify Protestantism or something? Um, no, he was really just doing it as an historical. historical uh, he wasn't trying. He never tried to justify Protestantism. He was always opposed to Protestantism, but he was also opposed to Rome initially as well. He, that's why he thought that the um, he thought the the Anglican Church was the perfect balance between the errors of Protestantism and the errors of Rome. So, what's the Arianism? Uh, well, well, he just he, he walked it. I think it was just initially done as a, uh, as an historical study of a very important 
uh, period in the church's life. But I think it also got him thinking along the lines of, um, you know, that Rome was, the, was, was what was standing for the truth at that time. And I think it, it must have very much jolted his, his thinking into other lines later on. I was thinking it's got nothing to do with the Aryan races. No, no, the, the Aryans were the follower of Aries. He, he was the one who, who believed that, was it Christ was divine but he wasn't God or something? He believed that he was a creature who was um, only lower than God, higher than God. Yeah, he, he was sort of virtually yeah, up with God's way, but a little bit below, not, not quite on, on par with God. It's very tricky when one's conversion process takes up so many years because... Letters of writings beginning with the conversion process and have a sort of, it's, it's a journey. And oh, yes, certainly, yes, it, it changed your opinion quite a bit, yes, on the line. That's right. When you quote it out of context, you get the yes, topics. Which, which people do, of course, quote out of context, right, yeah. But it proves that he's a very anti-liberal person because he was looking for perfection. Oh, absolutely, yes, yes, yes. That's right. It was the very opposite of liberals. He was looking for the truth. Yeah. And everything he did, and even the things that he got opposed to by the Catholic Church was because of his strict regard for truth. I mean, what, what the Catholics wanted him to do, what the people in Rome wanted him to do was to you know, come down very heavily on the Catholic side and you know, be totally one-sided. And he wouldn't do that. He would always argue the truth on both sides and you know, go for the highest truth by looking at it from both sides. He wouldn't, but he wouldn't take this one-sided view that they wanted from him. And that was what got him in a lot of trouble. Well, I think we'll end it up there, and thank you very much. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Mr. Stephen Hitchings. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.